I'm John Gormley. Good to have you here. Uh, It is amazing how quickly time flies by. About five years ago now, Joe Rolko, no relative to Rolko Radio, a distinguished Canadian press reporter for many years, a print journalist at one time, broadcaster. Uh, He is taught at the J School uh, now, well, as much as Joe Rolko could ever retire, uh, wrote a book called uh, The Devil's Gap, The Untold Story of Canada's First Suicide Bomber. And it was an amazing tale and uh, is being commemorated in the next week. W5 is going to be doing a special look back at the 50th anniversary of what was called the Kenora Bomber. This was uh, the Thursday before Mother's Day in May of 1973. A man walked into the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce in Kenora, Ontario, uh, east of Winnipeg on the Trans-Canada, showed the manager that he had a pistol, a rifle, six sticks of dynamite attached to his chest, put a black balaclava on, put a dead man's switch in his teeth using a form of a clothes peg, and they evacuated and the negotiations began and he had bags of money. But I'll never forget the images from that day back in 73. I was a kid in high school at the time. There must have been a thousand people crowded on the streets, kids you know, on their way back from school, parents, and uh, they were safely away, but not very far safely, maybe half a block. And it was the whole street scene. And Joe Rolko was one of those people, had a line of sight. And over the years, when you replay some of what went on that day, here's just an excerpt of the local radio station broadcasting what was happening. He is moving back into the bank now. He's got three duffel bags, three duffel bags, apparently full with money. Now they're coming back out again. It's the clothes peg in his mouth. He is carrying a flight bag. uh, The bomb has gone off. A bomb has gone off. A policeman has been shot. A man. Men are running. Two cars are completely heavily damaged. The entire front of the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce has just exploded. A helicopter is flying over top now. The OPP are coming to the scene. Policemen are ordering people well off the street. Windows have been blown out, literally, all over the place. That was May the 10th, 1973, in the small city of Kenora, Ontario. Joe Rolko, we find, in Regina, remembering this and marking it in his book called The Devil's Gap, The Untold Story of Canada's First Suicide Bomber. It's been ages since we've talked, my friend. I hope you're well. Yes, John. Thank you very much for having me again. Yes, I am well, and uh, thanks for the very flattering uh, introduction, and you're, you're correct. It was five years ago that uh, I self-published uh, The Devil's Gap, and it's 50 years since the event. Holy cow. So, so now, uh, that was just an excerpt. That was the local radio station? That's correct. Um, the, just by luck, the local radio station at the time occupied the second-floor offices almost directly across from the bank. So when the robbery started at about 3 o'clock that Thursday afternoon, They went over, removed windows from the second floor, and ran cables back to the control room. And then the news director and the program director, who's the person who sounds like he's got a British accent, started describing the scene 
uh, almost like a, a sporting event or a hockey game. And as you can hear uh, from the audio that I, I obtained, um, they captured the gunshot from the police sergeant who shot the robber, the explosion. And then if you listen carefully, you can hear glass falling to the sidewalk. So it was very dramatic. So CGRL had a front row seat and they capitalized on it. My goodness. So now, so basically what happens is the guy comes out and a police sergeant, Bob Latane, shoots him. And then that's mm-hmm. what causes the, the, the explosion. That's exactly right, John. Uh, let me just set the scene for you, for the listeners, uh, whether you're Leslie in, in Vancouver or Brandon in, in uh, Saskatoon or Melanie in Estevan. Here's a small town of about 10,000 people on the shores of Lake of the Woods in northwestern Ontario. I'm walking home from high school, and all of a sudden I feel like I'm in the middle of this Hollywood production. you got police cars blocking the street, guys walking around with shotguns. This is pre-internet, <laughs> pre-cell phone, pre-SWAT. So as a teenager, I walk up to this police barricade, and I'm standing there watching what's going on while these guys are walking around with guns and all that. Uh, and then when the robber comes out of the bank, um, he walks across the sidewalk, which is about 50 feet away from where I was standing, steps off the curb, steps between the getaway car, which a uh, off-duty police officer had um truck he'd offered to drive, turns to to the police barricade and makes himself a visible target. And then Bob Latane, Sergeant Bob Latane, takes his thirty oh eight Winchester rifle and shoots him, which causes him to release a dead man switch in his mouth, which are basically uh, clothes pegs that are uh, held together by him clinching down on it. And as soon as he shoots it, he releases it and it ignites the six sticks of dynamite and boom. Away he goes. Holy cow. Joe Rolko was with us, journalist, author. His book, about five years ago now, The Devil's Gap, The Untold Story of Canada's First Suicide Bomber. Did we ever find out much about who this bomber was and how he and what took him to the uh, CIBC Bank in Kenora? He registered at the Best Hotel in Kenora a few weeks earlier as Paul Higgins of 435 Glen Drive in Toronto. After his death, the police investigated and discovered that that was a false name. It was a fictitious address. Uh, And then, unfortunately, um, what little evidence that they had by way of uh, strands of hair that somebody was smart enough to to save then um, probably got lost through the sands of time. Um, The Kenora police was shut down in 2009 and... The policing in that community went to the Ontario Provincial Police. There are no, um, there's no evidence in the archive file, and unfortunately, we'll never know whether his real, what his real name was or what his purpose was. But he was very visible when he came to town, because this is before the big tourist season. He was wearing a pink plaid jacket, not your regular red and black or green and black bush jacket. His was pink. And it was brand new. So when he's walking down the street without sawdust, oil stains on his jacket, everybody knew in town, who's the new guy? What's he he there for? So locals, we saw him but didn't know who he was. And the the short answer to your story, uh, to your question, John, nobody knows to this day who he really was. That's remarkable. And he was in town for a few days. It wasn't like he just sort of showed up and robbed the bank. Yeah, he was there for a couple of weeks. He came, um, we were able to track it back that he arrived on a train from Eastern Canada 
soon after uh, the Easter weekend, and he was very visible wandering the streets. Uh, he had a real creepy routine. He went into the uh, main restaurant on Main Street at that time called the Plaza Restaurant every day at the same time. Uh, and when you and I go into restaurants in a strange town, our force of habit is to sit with our backs to the wall and look out the big picture window. What this guy did was he went to the same booth, ordered a cup of coffee and toast sometimes or, or breakfast, and he sat with his back to the to to the window. So people were forced to stare at him, and it was just. And I I was in there sometimes, and it was just really eerie. What a just what a creepy guy he was. Isn't that amazing? So uh, W5 is going to be commemorating this, and which, again, it was great to be able to talk with you about this. So does it remain in Canada as the first suicide bombing? I assert that in my book. Uh, one thing, and I was able to nail that down. The one thing that I didn't, I couldn't nail down, and I had a writing rule, which was that unless I had it, uh, attributed to two independent sources that I respected. I didn't write about it in the book. And this is one the one lead that I tried to chase, which was that May 10th, 1973 is to Canada as 9-11 is in the United States. It had such an impact. After the Kenora bomber, I believe personally that all um, police forces in Canada began to take suicide bombing very seriously, and that started the creation of emergency response teams, also known as SWAT, all across Canada. I tracked that down, and I just I couldn't get anybody in, in authority to go on the record um, for me to say that in the book, but I, I, it, I believe that it, it, it was significant because it was the first one, and keep in mind, it happened only 10 months after the 1972 Munich terrorist attack. So it was fresh in everybody's mind, and people were going, oh, my God, what would we do if it happened in my town? Yeah, isn't that true? Joe, always great getting uh, caught up again, and uh, good job on the Devil's Gap, the untold story of Canada's first suicide bomber. And thanks for bringing uh, this to our attention 50 years ago. Good to have you here. Thanks, John, and it's available print, audio, and digital online. Outstanding. Joe Rolko, local uh, journalist, author, and uh, I remember reading the book at the time. Very compelling. The Devil's Gap, the untold story of Canada's first suicide bomber. May the 10th, 1973, small city of Kenora, Ontario. The guy had been in town for weeks. He'd actually drawn attention to himself. And then he walks into the bank, opens his jacket, six sticks of dynamite on a vest, Handgun, uh, long gun with him, three bags of money, holds the whole bank and the town hostage. And then as he goes out, a police sergeant with a rifle shoots him and he releases the dead man switch in his mouth and the six sticks of dynamite ignite. Oh, anybody uh, seriously hurt? The only person, and of course he was injured uh, not seriously, but did lose his hearing and had some other effects, was the officer who had volunteered to drive the getaway truck for the robbers. So he was nearby. He received some wounds on the right side of his body and damage uh, to his eardrum. This is 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.
Gormley. Thanks for being here today. Oh, before I leave you, uh, you do know that the uh, finance ministers of Canada convened a meeting this morning remotely. Uh, It was all about the Canada pension plan and the premier in advance of the meeting uh, talking to reporters yesterday saying that, quote, we haven't been looking at or even considering or having a discussion in Saskatchewan about exiting the Canada pension plan. We've been quite happy with CPP, how it served the residents of Saskatchewan, and I hope that would continue. Alberta, for some time, has been looking at examining. In fact, there's been a report underway by Jim Dinning, former uh, treasurer, finance minister, and others on the future of Alberta staying in the Canada pension plan. What would be, if it happens, and there would have to be a referendum first, what would be the situation is Alberta would take out the share that its citizens have contributed over the year, uh, years, rate of interest and growth on that, and then they would start their own standalone pension plan that would still be like CPP. It would be employee and employer matched, except it would be exclusively managed by the Alberta uh, management, they have a, their own funds management agency in Alberta. No other provinces are keen on this. Quebec, of course, has had its own standalone pension plan for years. So a statement this morning after our Minister of Finance, Donna Harpower, meets with the other finance ministers, quote, there was a lot of recognition from the provinces across the nation for the need for fairness for all Canadians when it comes to CPP. And then she says, uh, the government acknowledged that due to the complexity of the plan, it would be a number of years before a discussion would conclude. And then she mentions the minister from Alberta reiterated that province's plan, which will also take a number of years to reach the referendum stage before they officially signal to the federal government that Alberta intends to leave. She then reports, I am extremely disappointed with the complete disregard from Federal Minister Freeland to speak about the carbon tax crisis created by the federal government last week when they chose to announce the unfair treatment of Canadians across the country. I expressed my frustration with the federal government on its attempt to distract Canadians by inflating a false sense of urgency on the CPP topic, which could take... A decade or more to resolve. So that was uh, all we have from Donna Harpower. Well, that's all we have today on the show. And let me thank you for another great week of radio. The crew that put this show on every morning, Brando Queering, technical producer, call screener, assisted so ably this morning by Davis Remenda. I thank you, my friend. And Libby Giesbrecht is the executive producer and the content creator of so much of what we do. I'm John Gormley. I will see you here next week, 836 Monday, to be continued on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.